Morning. Thank you so much. You're so kind. Great to be here. I'm not quite sure what these Velcro strips are at the front of the lectern. Anyone shed any light on this? If you need a Velcro strip at the end of the meeting, these are free for any taker, so come grab those. Uh, well, really good morning to you. Welcome to you if you are a visitor here. Thank you for coming to our family. Uh, really, really good to have you here. And we are right in the middle of a series on the book of Esther in the Old Testament. So if you have got a Bible, you might want to turn to Esther chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. The words will come up on the screen behind me in just a few moments. But let me just start with this statement as we dive straight in today. If you are living a resistance-free life, something might be seriously wrong with you. If you are living a resistance-free life, something might be seriously wrong with your life. Because the Bible is very clear that you and I have been born into a struggle. We've been born into a struggle that there is a, a real struggle going on in the spiritual realms, the hidden realms right now. What is interesting in our nation is that even though there has been a massive secular agenda in our nation through humanism and atheism, what's fascinating is as you talk to people, particularly under the age of uh, 30, there is now a massive awareness of the reality of spiritual things. There was a recent survey done at Nottingham University where 85% of students said they believed in otherworldly activity in a spiritual realm. Even though many of them didn't believe in God, they had an awareness that there was something going on beyond just this flesh and blood. You only have to go to Waterstones and look at the bookshelves and see a fascination with vampires, demons, ghosts, ghouls, demons, otherworldly, to understand that even though the secular agenda has pushed us towards, well, it's just about this material life, actually, there is, there is a realization in the human soul that there is another realm. And the Bible is very clear that we have a, a struggle that is not against flesh and blood, but is against spiritual powers and rulers. Ephesians 6.12 says this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You have a very real spiritual enemy called Satan, who opposes you because he opposes God. And you've been born into a struggle. And I want you to notice here that Paul uses his language very carefully. He doesn't say you've been born into a battle. He says you've been born into a struggle. The reason you've been born into a struggle and not a battle is because the victory already belongs to Jesus. <laughs> the victory already belongs to him. And so we're living life in this struggle, but from the perspective of Jesus has already won the victory. This is what Colossians 2 says. It says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And get this, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus has triumphed. His work is finished on the cross. When Jesus said, it is finished, he actually meant it. He actually meant it. He's done it. The battle belongs to the Lord. The enemy of your soul has been defeated, but has not finally been destroyed yet. Have you ever wondered why that is? 
Why has Jesus won this victory? He's won the battle. He's disarmed the powers and rulers. And yet Satan isn't yet fully destroyed. He's still at work in the world. We're still in this spiritual struggle. Have you ever wondered, what, God, why don't you just finish him off there and have it done with? Well, part of the reason is this, is that God allows a disarmed, powerless enemy to struggle in the world because he wants to teach you how to co-heir and co-partner with Christ in dispensing the victory that he's already won. The reason that you're on this planet and that you've not yet been taken up into glory in heaven is that your salvation was only the starting point. You are now here to change the planet and dispense the victory of Christ wherever you go. And the reason there is still an enemy in this world is that you, by partnering with Jesus, might see his ultimate defeat and demise. You get to partner with the victory of Jesus. And that's why signing up to follow Jesus is less like a ticket to Disneyland and more like a call-up to active duty. I don't know if you realized that when you gave your life to Christ. You may have thought God was giving you a ticket to Disneyland. Well, I've got some sobering news for you this morning. It was actually more like a call to active duty. You've been enlisted into the army of Christ to bring about his victory wherever you set your feet on this planet. Which is why hearing stories like that in Yarlswood are just so significant because what's happening there is the victory that Jesus has already won is now being made known on the earth through people like Sam. You're called to dispense the victory of Christ. And I think rarely have I been so aware of this spiritual struggle that's going on than I have in the last couple of years here. Even just looking at our own elders team and our elders families. And I was just looking at some of the things that have been going on the last couple of years, just in our little, just the, the five families that are represented in the elders team. This last couple of years, um, there have been at least three close family deaths, one tragedy, two cancers, long-term illness, children hospitalized, children with serious sicknesses, thefts, floods, road accidents, bike accidents. I mean, you name it, it's probably happened in the last couple of years. And never have I been quite so aware of this spiritual struggle that is going on around us. But do you know what? That is perversely encouraging. Because there is, if there is nothing in your life worth resisting, then the enemy won't resist. Bill Johnson says this. He says, if you don't encounter the enemy once in a while on your path, it may be that you're going the same direction. That's like a wet kip around the face. If you don't once in a while encounter an enemy in your path, it may be that you're going the same direction. In other words, the enemy struggles where there is something worth stealing from us. And we are born into this spiritual struggle. And the reality is that sometimes God himself intentionally leads us into struggles that we might learn how to win victories. It's interesting, just as an aside, that when Jesus was tempted after his baptism, it says the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. Did you get that? It wasn't that he suddenly was, found himself in these circumstances that were beyond God's control. No, actually it says God led him into the wilderness to be tempted. Why? Because he wanted to empower his son to win a victory. And God's plan is still the same. He wants to empower his sons and daughters to learn how to win victories, which means sometimes God will intentionally lead you into struggles so that you have to learn to fight with the weapons that he's given you because you're his sons and daughters. You're his ambassadors on the planet to dispense his victory. 
So don't be surprised. The scripture says, don't be surprised at the trials you're suffering, as if they're somehow strange. Actually, no, no. Jesus said, you'll have many troubles in this life. You will inherit the kingdom through many tribulations. I'm sorry, this is, may not be very good news for some of you. But the reality is, you are going to face difficulty in this life. That is one sure thing that you will face. But here's the question. What are you going to do with what Jesus has given you in those moments? Because trials reveal you as much as they mold you. It's in those moments of battle and trial where suddenly the sons of God are revealed. And you begin to dispense the victory that belongs to the Lord. And so as we come to this next portion in in the story of Esther, what we find is this incredible moment of divine justice where we learn some of the ways in which God likes to defeat his enemy through his people. And if you were here last week, you would have heard Paul talk about um, the last portion of our story where basically Esther uh, is married to the king of Persia, Xerxes, and she, through her influence, is beginning to uh, bring salvation to the Jewish nation. She's beginning to uh, exert her influence in the palace so that her uncle Mordecai has now been exonerated and honored in the nation Paul was looking at this last week, how Mordecai was led through the streets of Persia in royal robes with a crown on his head on the king's horse, led by the very man, Haman, who wanted to destroy him. And now we come to the next bit of the story, and things for Haman are going to get a whole lot worse as they sit around the king's dinner table. And we're going to read together in verse 1 and look at some of the ways that God defeats his enemies. So the king and Haman went to dinner with Queen Esther. At this second dinner, while they were drinking wine, the king again asked, asked Queen Esther, what would you like? Half of my kingdom, just ask and it's yours. Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your eyes, O king, and if it please the king, give me my life and give, me, and give my people their lives. We've been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, sold to be massacred, eliminated. If we had just been sold off into slavery, I wouldn't even have thought, brought it up. Our troubles wouldn't have been worth bothering the king over. King Xerxes exploded. Who? Where is he? This is monstrous. An enemy, an adversary, this evil Haman, said Esther. Haman was terror-stricken before the king and queen. And then skip to verse 9. Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, spoke up. Look over there. There's the gallows that Haman had built for Mordecai who saved the king's life. It's right next to Haman's house, 75 feet high. The king said, hang him on it. So Haman was hanged on the very gallows that he had built for Mordecai, and the king's hot anger cooled. Love that. It's like that moment in Lord of the Rings where Aragorn chops the head of the orc off, and you just go, yes! Well, that's my reaction anyway. this is, this is kind of one of those moments. Haman, who's devised this plan to kill Mordecai, to kill the Jewish nation, suddenly gets his comeuppance. Suddenly, divine justice is served. And Haman is killed on the very gallows he built for another man. This is what I call divine reversal. And it's one of the ways God loves to defeat his enemies through us. He loves to divinely reverse the circumstances of our life and actually cause us to prosper in the very things the enemy intended to kill us. That's how God loves to defeat his enemies. Of course, it's the very thing that happened at the cross. The cross was 
I think of that moment where Jesus was hanging on the cross in, his, in the weakness and the shame of that moment. Seemingly, his earthly plan had failed. I think Satan would have been rubbing his jolly little greedy hands, thinking, brilliant, my plan has worked. This cross I've set up, this is it. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be in charge now. The Son of God, he's going to be out of the picture. Brilliant, my plan has worked. Little did he know that the cross was the very Trojan horse that the Father had designed to bring about the redemption of the whole planet. The, the Father uses the very gallows that the enemy intended to slay Jesus on to actually bring about the world's freedom. And this is what the Father does. He takes the things that were intended to harm you and actually reverses them and makes them for your good. The things that were designed for your destruction, he actually turns for your benefit. This is how God loves to defeat his enemies. You know, I remember growing up, one of my great fears, I had a chronic fear of speaking in public. I mean, I just, at school, I, I hated speaking in front of anyone. I was the shyest kid in the class. I would, I would never respond to a question. If the teacher asked me a question, I would go bright red in an instant. I would just feel like the, you know, the biggest idiot in the classroom. And so I would keep my head down. I would never answer questions. And all the, all the while, the, the lies of the enemy were in my head. You're never going to be able to speak in front of people. You're never going to be able to do that. You shouldn't even bother. You'll just, you'll just go red. You'll just be embarrassed. You know, that, that's not for you. That's not for you. And how ironic that I now get paid to talk for a living. And that's what God does. He takes the very things that the enemy lies to you about. And he says, actually, I'm going to use that very thing. I'm going to heap burning coals on his head in an act of divine justice. And possibly one of the most life-giving, hope-inspiring promises of all scriptures, Romans 8, 28, which says this, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. What that basically means is God can win always. <laughs> Even if, you know, if he was playing poker and you gave him the worst hand in the deck, God could still win. That's what Romans 8.28 is saying. He says he can work all things together for the good of those who love him. Think about the crummiest things in your life. Romans 8.28 says God uses all things. He works all things together for your good. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? God is so good that he takes even the debris and the fragments of our life and he can make something with them. God's incredible. Joseph, in his story, he was abused by his brothers. He was lied about by his brothers. He was hurt by his brothers. He was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was abandoned by his brothers. And yet at the end of the story, this is what he says to his brothers. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. The saving of many lives. God loves to save lives through those whose lives have been saved. That's how God works. That's how God works. He loves to save lives through those whose lives have been saved. And you know that God has rescued them. Because the reality about God is that God is not only a rescuer, he is a redeemer. God's plan is not just to resuscitate you. His plan isn't just to deliver you from your enemies. His plan is that you rule over your enemies. 
his plan isn't that he just kind of takes you away from those nasty things. His plan actually is that you go straight back into those nasty things and begin to transform them. Because he's not just a rescuer, he's a redeemer, which means he makes something of you. He fashions you into something. He transforms you. He makes you a light set on a hill. He makes you the salt of the earth. He makes you the hope of the nations. That's what he does. The Bible says he takes the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He takes the things that are not. You can get happy at any moment about any of these truths. He takes the things that are not as if they were. He takes the foolish things to shame the strong. Aren't you glad about that? God is not just a rescuer. He's a redeemer. He makes something of you. And I'm not just talking about the person you're sitting next to. I'm talking about you. You. Your life. With all that's going on in it. With all of its complicated, complex past and maybe present. God can take that and he can make something from it. Because he defeats his enemies by divinely reversing the things the enemy intended for harm. I remember talking to my, my dad who in 2012 had uh, bowel cancer. And uh, there were real touch-and-go moments. We weren't quite sure how it was going to go. And he had a year of just horrendous tests and treatments and very invasive uh, surgery. And I was chatting to him yesterday, actually, and he said, do you know, the amazing thing was, he said, in that year, he said, I got more revelation about eternity than ever in my whole life before. And he said, people prayed for me for healing, and it was great, and I accepted the prayers he said, to be honest, I was just enjoying the thought that I might meet my maker soon. He said, I had such a revelation of heaven and glory that I was ready. I was ready to go. And he said, Jesus was speaking. He said, for the whole year, I just studied and meditated my eternal hope in Christ. And he said, I just fed on that the whole year. Now, the amazing thing is God totally delivered him from the cancer. He's been signed off. He's, he's free. He's sickness-free. But since then, he's seen scores and scores of other men and women who are battling cancer, and he's now been able to dispense the hope that Jesus gave him. And that's what Jesus does. That's what he does. In your very moments of trial, he gives you seed to sow so that you can save other people's lives. It's called divine reversal. Here's what it says at the end of chapter 8 about how God not only rescues and redeems, it says this, Mordecai walked out of the king's presence wearing a royal robe of violet and white, a huge gold crown, and a purple cape of fine linen. The city of Susa exploded with joy. For Jews, it was all sunshine and laughter. They celebrated, and they were honored. That's how the story ends. That's how the story ends. Secondly, the second way that God loves to defeat his enemies is by canceling the enemy's assignments. This is what we discover in the next part of our story is that not only is Haman killed, but his plans to kill and annihilate the Jewish people are also cancelled. This is what we read. It says, Esther says this to the king, How can I stand to see this catastrophe wipe out my people? How can I bear to stand by and watch the massacre of my own relatives? King Xerxes said to Queen Esther and Mordecai, I've given Haman's estate to Esther, and he's been hanged on the gallows because he attacked the Jews. So go ahead now and write whatever you decide on behalf of the Jews, and then seal it with a signet ring. An order written in the king's name and sealed with this signet ring is irrevocable. So here we see God defeating his enemies by cancelling the enemy's assignment. And this actually is what Jesus knew that he was on the planet for. 
1 John 3, 8 says this, that Jesus came to destroy all the works of the evil one. Do you know your assignment right now? Your assignment is the same as Jesus. Destroy all the works of the evil one. Wherever you come face to face with pain, injustice, greed, selfishness, hopelessness, lust, despair, wherever you come face to face with the works of the evil one, your assignment is to destroy the works of the enemy and cancel his assignments. Because you've been given authority to do that. It's an incredible story about this man on your screen, David Livingstone. Uh, David Livingstone was an English missionary to Africa. And across his lifetime, he traveled, I think, somewhere in the region of 29,000 miles across the continent of Africa, preaching the gospel to unreached tribes in that great continent. And uh, there's a brilliant story in his life where one evening he was told that one of the tribes near where he lives was planning to come and attack and kill him in the middle of the night because they didn't want him preaching the gospel of Jesus. And the motto that Livingstone lived by was a verse from the Bible that says, Behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And uh, on January the 14th, 1856, this is what Livingstone wrote in his journal. He said, it is evening. I feel much turmoil and fear in the prospect of having all my plans knocked on the head by savage natives who are now outside the camp. But Jesus said, all power is given to me in heaven and earth, and behold, I'm with you always even until the end of the age. This is the word of a gentleman of most strict and sacred honor. So that is the end of my fear. I feel quite calm now. <laughs> and the story goes that Livingstone then went to sleep that night and there was no attack. There was no attack. Now a couple of years went past. The tribe that had come to attack him night, actually many of them came to Christ. And Livingstone was able to go to them and he said, why didn't you attack that particular night? He said, an attack never came. What happened? And the leader of the tribe said, well, we came right up to the edge of your hut. But when we saw your hut, there were 47 warriors standing around your hut, standing, holding swords in their hands. And so we were afraid. So we ran off. And Livingstone said, well, that's amazing because we had no guards. I don't know who they were. Now, fast forward the story on a little bit more. Livingstone then went to Edinburgh in Scotland to talk to some of the supporters of his mission work. And he was telling this story about this evening. One of the guys in uh, the crowd in Edinburgh came up to him at the end and he said, uh, Mr. Livingstone, what was the date that that happened? And he, he looked at his journal and he said, January the 14th, 1856. And this gentleman then got hold of his journal and opened it and he said, Mr. Livingstone, on that very evening that those 47 warriors turned up around your camp, in Edinburgh, there were 47 of us gathered praying for you that very evening. Isn't that amazing? Woo! So you have been, you've been commissioned by Jesus to cancel the enemy's assignments. You've been given authority to cancel his assignments by Jesus. You've got a divine commission. And one of the interesting things in this story with Esther is that this plan to cancel the enemy's assignment is done with the signet ring of the king. Now, the signet ring of a king was the, the royal stamp of his sonship and identity and authority to rule. And when you sign something with the signet ring, it was done. 
It was seals. Interesting, in the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, the father gives the prodigal returning son his signet ring. He puts a ring on his finger. That signifies that in that moment, the prodigal son came back home to the father. The father takes off his own ring as a seal of his identity and sonship and puts it on the, on the finger of the son. And he's basically saying to the son, son, you now have delegated authority to carry out your father's business in town. It meant that when he went back into the town where formerly he'd been disgraced, he could show the ring and say, I am my father's son. I carry out my business on behalf of him. And the reality is, if you are going to live understanding your assignment to cancel the enemy's plans, you need to understand that you have the signet ring of the Father's approval to carry out his business wherever your feet tread. You have this ring of sonship on your finger, which means you have authority to carry out his business, his affairs. 2 Corinthians 1.22 says that Jesus has set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. The truth is, angels and demons understand who you are and what you carry. The big question is, do you? Okay, in the spiritual realms right now, there is a, a, a crystal clear awareness of who Mark Adams is. They understand that he is a son, a royally commissioned ambassador from heaven, who has the signet ring of sonship on his finger. Angels and demons understand that about Mark. I tell you, as Mark understands it, he is going to transform everything around him because he carries that with him wherever he goes. Sorry to pick you up, mate. I just happened to see you there. It's the same for you. Do you understand who you are? Do you understand? And that means that the reality is often you will be the answer to your own prayers. You ever prayed those prayers? God, just break into that area of town. You know, it's just like God to say, great idea. Why don't you go? <laughs> so that's what happened with the disciples. Jesus, there's these 5,000 hungry men on a field. Where are they going to get something to eat? Jesus says to them, mm, you feed them. Oh, what? That's what Jesus does. I remember walking with a good friend of mine in Newcastle many years ago, and he was just getting stirred with the plight of the poor, particularly asylum seekers, many of whom were destitute. We were, they were coming into our church, getting saved. Many were just homeless, had no rights, no, nothing. They were just destitute. And I remember getting together with him. He said, Phil, I, just, I can't get these asylum seekers out of my head. I'm just, I, I'm just praying God do something. I said to him, maybe God's asking you to do something. And he said, yeah, maybe he is. And he went away and he prayed. And as we began to talk, he said, Phil, God's called me to work with asylum seekers. He gave up incredibly well-paid marketing job, started to work for two years on no income, living by faith because God had called him to reach out to destitute asylum seekers. He's now set up a massive project called Action Foundation, which is, which is helping literally hundreds and hundreds of asylum seekers right across the northeast of England just because he answered the call. They're hungry, Lord. Brilliant. Why don't you go and feed them? And you can do that because of who you are and because of what you carry. And then lastly, here's the, the last way that God loves to defeat his enemies. It's by equipping his people to win. Here's the last bit in our story for today. The king's order authorized the Jews in every city to arm and defend themselves to the death, killing anyone who threatened them or their women and children 
and confiscating for themselves anything owned by their enemies. Basically, King Xerxes says to the Jews, listen, if anyone comes and attacks you, I'm going to put swords in your hands so that you can defend yourself and your families. You have got a divine right now to fight for your lives. And he puts swords in their hands. And in the same way, God equips us to be able to fight in the struggle. This is what 2 Corinthians 10.3 says. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Notice there, when Paul is talking about this struggle that we're involved with, he does so by saying our, our struggle are against the thoughts and pretensions and arguments of the enemy. In other words, the fiercest battleground is not out there, but is in here. He's saying the battlefield, primarily for the Christian, is the battlefield of the mind, which is exactly why Jesus announced his ministry with this thought, Repent, change the way you think, because the kingdom wants to break out. How you think, how you marshal your thought life is critical to your behavior. Everything that you do flows out of what you believe. Which is why Paul says, you've been given weapons to wage a war in your mind, the battlefield of your thought life. And he says, we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Jesus. Are you doing that in your life? Are you doing that in your life? Are you marshalling your thoughts and making them obedient to Christ? Do you know, every time I get fearful, it's a sign that I'm not marshalling my thoughts to make them obedient to Jesus. How are you doing? Every time I get anxious about the future, I'm not marshalling my thoughts and making them obedient to Jesus. Because Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. So am I marshalling my thoughts? Are you taking captive your thoughts. And what happens is if we don't take captive our thoughts, Paul says the enemy likes to construct strongholds. The weapons we fight have divine power to demolish strongholds, but when we're not using these divine weapons, it's easy to create strongholds of the mind where actually we don't think God's thoughts after him. And we create fortresses where the kingdom cannot break through. And it was a great relief to me actually that one day when I realized that not all of my thoughts are my own. Did you realize that? Not all of your thoughts are your own. Your thoughts come from various different sources. Some of them are from you. Some of them are from the Lord. Some of them are from what you're watching or what you're reading. But also you have an enemy who likes to lie. Jesus said that Satan has been lying from the beginning and that when he lies, he's speaking his native language. And while Jesus has bound and disarmed Satan, Satan understands his final trajectory is to be thrown into the lake of fire at the end of all things. Satan has been, dis, he's been disarmed, disempowered, and defeated. But the one thing he can still do is talk. Okay, he's got no weapons in his hands. He's got no authority because Jesus has it all. But one thing he can do is talk to you. And when he talks, he lies because that's his native language. 
And I'll suggest to you that the battles in your life often have to do with the lies that you're believing from the enemy. He has no authority unless we start to believe the things that he says. Which means at times, the thoughts that you have in your head, you'll have to understand and realize, hang about, this isn't me. I remember a few years ago, having a season of a couple of months where regularly I would wake up in the morning and I would think, I've made a mistake moving to Bedford. I don't think I should be here. And God, I think I've made a terrible error. And I feel unsettled and I feel, I I don't know, I, I feel worried, I feel anxious about being here. And then I remember reading a book that said, not all of your thoughts are your own. And I suddenly thought, that's right. That thought's not me. That's the enemy. And instantly, it went away. Instantly, as I realized the source of that particular thought. I don't know how many of you have had this experience, and I I may be sounding completely nuts here to some of you, but I don't know if you have this experience where some of you, you're driving along a motorway, and suddenly you have this flash thought in your head If I just turned the steering wheel now, I could end it all. Just raise your hand if you've ever had that thought. Okay, just look around the room. Let me ask you, did that thought originate from you or from another source? You have an enemy who is lying to you constantly. In fact, Scripture says he is the accuser of the brothers day and night. So let me ask you this question. What lies are you believing at the moment? What lies are you believing The enemy lies to us about our identity. He lies to us about our motives. He lies about our ability to complete the mission. He lies about your relationship with God. He lies about the quality of your work. He lies about other people's motives. He lies to you about what the character of God is like. He will just lie about anything he can in order that you might believe the things that he says to you. What lies are you believing? And The Bible says God has put swords in your hands to defeat the lies of the enemy. Specifically, he has given you truth inspired by the Holy Spirit. If you as a soldier of Jesus don't go armed into battle with your sword of the Spirit, you are going into battle unprepared. This book is your sword. The Holy Spirit has put it in your hands that you might wage war, not as the world does, but on the contrary, you have divine power to demolish strongholds. You demolish strongholds by believing what is now true. This book now tells you what is true. Are you reading it, loving it, getting it into you? Three things I would say about the the scriptures. Number one, find out what is true in the Bible. Wow, I'm God's beloved. I'm his treasured possession. He's never going to leave me or forsake me. Wow, I'm forgiven forever. I'm an ambassador with Christ. I've been raised with Jesus. I'm a co-heir with Christ. I'm going to reign and rule with Jesus forever. Wow. Find out what's true in this book. Secondly, declare what is true. Or secondly, actually recognize what's false. Recognize what's false. When the enemy comes to lie to you and says, "Uh, I I wouldn't bother having a go at that. You'll probably fail because you're a failure. When you try stuff, you always fail. Actually say, hang about. That thought is not my own. That's coming from another source. What does the Bible say? And then lastly, declare the truth. Declare the truth to yourself, but also to one another. You know, it shouldn't be possible in this church for you to put yourself down and for someone else not to say, hang about, what you just said is not true. That should not be possible in this church. If you're in your, your, your life group or missional community and you put yourself down, 
It should not be possible for you to do that without an avalanche of other people saying to you, hang about, what you just said is not true. That doesn't line up with what the Bible says. So guys, marshal your thoughts. Take captive your thoughts and make them obedient to Christ because this is how God defeats his enemies.